U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I'm Dale. And the EXO is very happy today. Steven. Ironclads! 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 Yes, we're going to have a more fun episode after the depressing last few and go over the Ironclads. All right. Can't wait for this one, folks. I think the EXO's already ready to get underway. <laughs> Let's cast off. So, the Ironclads were a steam-propelled warship protected by iron or steel armor plates, and these were constructed from 1859 to the early 1890s. They were developed as a result of the vulnerability of wooden ships to explosives or incendiary shells. And the French Navy was the first one to put one out, followed closely by the British. Hey, even if we weren't the first, at least we were probably the first to have them fight each other. We did. The American Revolution is where the Ironclads first went up against each other. So, the Ironclads, according to a naval historian named J. Richard Hill, has three chief characteristics a metal-skinned hull, steam propulsion, and a main armament of guns capable of firing explosive shells. Now, it is only when the ship has all three of these characteristics that it is a ship that can be properly called an ironclad. And, of course, each of these developments were introduced separately before they were thought to be put together into the first ironclads. So in the 18th and 19th centuries, fleets relied on two types of major warships. These were the ships of the line and the frigate. So the first major change to these boats was the introduction of steam power for propulsion. Now, paddle steamers as warships had been used from the 1830s but steam propulsion only became suitable for major warships after they figured out the screw propeller in the 1840s. So these steam-powered screw frigates were built in the mid-1840s, and at the end of the 1840s, the French Navy introduced steam power to its line of battle. Napoleon III's, he had a huge amount of ambition to get more influence in Europe. And this, of course, required them to be able to challenge the British at sea. So the first purpose-built steam battleship was the 90-gun Napoleon in 1850. This boat was armed as a conventional ship of the line, but her steam engines gave her a speed of 12 knots regardless of wind. That's not the fastest, but that's reliability that you can't get back then. This gave them a huge advantage in naval engagement. So when this boat was introduced, this started a shipbuilding competition between France and Britain. This allowed eight sister ships to the Napoleon built in France over a period of a decade. But of course, the UK... They, they took the lead pretty quickly. 
So altogether, France built 10 new wooden steamships and converted 28 from older ships of the line, while the UK built 18 and converted 41. I'm no math expert, but yeah, I think UK came out ahead in that. Yeah. Now, explosive shells. This new, brand new era of wooden steam ship of the line ships didn't last long because of naval guns. Bigger, more powerful naval guns. Hey guys, I, hold out. I got a crazy idea. You know how we launch big, like, cast iron balls with an explosion? What if the cast iron ball also exploded? Yeah. So in the 1820s and 30s, warships start mounting heavier and heavier guns, replacing the 18 to 24 pounder guns that were standard with 32 pounders on the sailing ships and 68 pounders on the steamers. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. That's uh. Like 32 pounders, we've talked about a little bit, and I was just thinking, you know, I'm not in the best shape, but I, I could probably load one of those a few times. 68 pounders? No, you know what? I don't need to fire the gun that badly. And then the first explosive shells were introduced not soon after that. And these were developed by the French general Henry Joseph Piaxons. I know I butchered that. I, I apologize to Henry. And <laughs> and by the 18th... <laughs> you stupid American jacuzzi. Oh, yeah. Oh, well. And by the 1840s, they were a standard armament for the naval powers, which included the French Navy, the Royal Navy, the Russian Navy, and the United States Navy. So it's said that the power of explosive shells to smash wooden hulls, which was demonstrated by the Russian destruction of a Ottoman squadron at the Battle of Sinop. Oh, poor Ottomans. Yeah, this pretty much spelled the end of wooden-hulled warships. I mean, now not only are they getting smashed like balsa wood by, you know, cast-iron musket balls the size of, uh, you know, me, but now, now I explode after penetrating that hull. Yeah, so you can imagine this is an upgrade to Hot Shots. Remember those? <laughs> oh, goodness. I, I hadn't thought about those in a hot second. Yeah. And navies also experimented with hollow shot filled with molten metal for, you know, more firepower. Uh, wait, I have questions. Um... We don't need to go into them. But mainly, how are you filling the cannonball with molten metal unless you have a smithy aboard to melt ingots and then pour it during battle, mind you, very carefully into a small hole in this cannonball? Boats typically had anybody and everybody they needed to repair anything and everybody and everything on the ship. So they would have a smithy. Okay, um... Yeah, definitely glad I'm not in a gunnery crew back in this time having to do that, because <laughs> that sounds incredibly dangerous. Then there's iron armor. The use of iron instead of wood began in the 1830s as the first warship with an iron hull 
was a gunboat named the Nemesis. And this was built for the East India Company in 1839. I mean, now that the cannonballs explode, definitely necessary. Yeah. And, of course, once everybody saw this thing, they were like, oh, we need warships with metal hulls. So the frigates Guadalupe and Matsuzuma were made for the Mexican Navy. Full-blown metal warships. Now, back in this time, especially before the invention of ironclads, did these metal warships have a, a hull structure similar to what ships of the line would? In, like, boat shape and what we think of them? Or would it be more flat and pontoon party boat style? No, the iron used in these were very thin, so they were still looking like regular ships. Okay. And because of this thin iron skin, they weren't susceptible to fire or, you know, the splintering effect when a cannonball hits a wooden hull. But this is not the same thing as armor, you know, to stop gunfire, period. So in 1843, the U.S. Navy launched its first ironclad warship, the USS Michigan, on the Great Lakes. And this boat served for 70 years. So there was an ironclad in the early 20th century just steaming around the Great Lakes. For 70 years. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. So when Napoleon III sees the explosive shells against wooden ships in action, he was like, well, we're kind of vulnerable to the Russians now. And, you know, the Crimean War's popping off. So, you know what? I need some light draft floating batteries. Give them heavy guns and heavy armor. And throw a steam engine in there too while we're at it. So, start the experiments during the first half of 1854. And, you know, this was pretty, pretty successful. And on July 17th of 1854, the French got in contact with the British government and said, hey, we have found a way to make gunproof vessels and we're going to give you the plans. How nice? What do they want? Probably help in the Crimean War. Okay, I, I was going to say, like, France and Russia, uh, Fran France and England, sorry, are age-old enemies. Yes. They don't just hand out gifts to each other like that, especially military gifts. Not unless they want something. Exactly. So the British Admiralty did some tests in September, and they were like, you know what? This is pretty good. Let's make five of them. And they created some ironworks on the Thames with docks and started building them. And the they were deployed in 1855 to supplement the wooden steam battle fleet of the French in the Crimean War. The role of these batteries was to assist unarmored mortar and gunboats bombarding shore fortifications. The French used three of their ironclad batteries in 55 against defenses of 
at the Battle of Kinburn on the Black Sea, where, you know, the Russian shore defenses stood no chance. Huzzah, her sides are really made of iron this time. Yes. And again, they would be used in the Italian War in the Adriatic in 59. Now, the British got there a little bit too late. They sent the their batteries, the Glatton and Meteor, but they got there too late to help with Kinburn. It's the thought that counts. Yeah. But then they were like, you know what? We're going to use ours in the Baltic Sea against the... Russian navies based at Kronstadt. So, these batteries do have a claim to the title of the first ironclad warships, but they were only capable of four knots under their own power. <laughs> oh, hey. You go, little guy. You're still moving. Yeah, I mean, they operated under their own power during battle, but were towed for long range transit oh so it's honestly a little more than a floating gun battery yeah that's all it is they you know they were pretty much just ovals with iron going up and guns coming out and you know smokestacks and probably a couple masts as well that's what it, it looks it's like. like a little when i say little i mean these things are probably pretty sizable but it's like a little gun turtle yeah! But no. They had a flat deck. They were oval. Not round oval. I just, I'm imagining it having like a, a, a steel like roof as well. Or iron. I just sent you a picture. Okay. Where? In Skype? In the chat? Oh. It would help if I hit return. There you go. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. That's a little different than what I was expecting. Yes. But, you know, the success of these first batteries convinced France to begin work on armored warships. So, of course, by the end of the 1850s, you know, France was like, there is no way we're going to be able to beat the British and their production of steam warships. Well, yeah. Britain it literally is surrounded by coastline. You are not. Yeah. So, they decided that we are going to make a change. And this was the result of the first ocean-going ironclad, the Glorier. Her keel was laid down in 1857 and launched in 1859. Now, she did have a wooden hull, and it was modeled on a steamship of the line. She was reduced to one deck and sheathed in iron plates four and a half inches thick. Oh, wow. She was propelled by a steam engine, driving one screw for 13 knots. So, just so I'm getting the right picture in my head, this was effectively a wooden ship, just absolutely encased in iron anywhere that it could receive fire at the time. It was just around the hull. It was not on the deck itself. Okay. It was around the hull, above the waterline. Yeah. But still, four and a half inches, that is, uh, in this era, pretty pretty thoroughly, you know, cannon-proof. So she was armed with 36 
6.4 inch rifled guns. Oh, wow. And then proceeded to build 16 more. Yeah, these are, uh, in this era, muck around and find out. <laughs> yeah. Now, the Royal Navy were like, do we really want to sacrifice our advantage in steamships of the line? But look at those ironclads that the French just put out. We have to outmatch them in every way, especially speed. Yeah, 14 because... knots isn't anything to set records with, but if you can reliably do that, you know, forget about needing to rely on wind or current. Well, speed would also give them the advantage of being able to choose the range that they wanted to engage at. That's true. So the British made a larger, more powerful frigate than a standard ship of the line. Because they wanted them to be fast, this meant that the vessel would have to be very long. And it would be built from iron. The result of this was called the Warrior Class Ironclads. They were called the HMS Warrior and the HMS Black Prince. They had... Their design was actually pretty successful. But of course, there were compromises between seakeeping and strategic range and armor protection. Their weapons were more effective than the French version. And they had the largest set of steam engines ever to be fitted into a ship. They had a speed of 14.3 knots. Well, golly, a whole point three knots faster. 1.3. Oh, I thought you said 14 for the uh, Gloriere. Uh, that was 13. Okay, well, 1.3 is, yeah, that's nothing to sneeze at then. Yeah. And this warrior class, you said, is in completely made of iron. Like, this isn't a wooden hull just with some iron skin. This is a through-and-through -through metal boat. Well, that was the plan, but sacrifices had to be made. So the, the French version had full iron protection along the waterline up, you know, to the, to the top deck where the battery was. What the British version had to concentrate their armor in the central area leaving many main deck guns and the fore and aft sections of the vessel unprotected so reinforced for their broadside but if somebody could get ahead of them or directly behind them they're in trouble right which is why speed was important yes now of course the use of iron came with some drawbacks Iron hulls require more regular and intensive repairs than wooden hulls do. Yeah, you can't exactly just swap out a plank with these. Yeah, and it was also more susceptible to fouling by marine life. Much more barnacles. Really? Yep. Huh. I would have thought they'd like wood better. No, they like iron better. By 1862, navies across Europe had adapted ironclads. Britain and France each had 16 either completed or under construction. Though, of course, the British vessels were larger because they had to be. They weren't going to be outdone by no French For queen guy. and country, we must have the biggest ships, the biggest guns, 
Without compensating, I swear. Yes. But once, uh, you know, the French and British were going at the ironclads, Austria, Italy, and Russia, and Spain, they were like, oh, we got to get in on this. And they start building them as well. But as I mentioned before, and as you mentioned before, the first battles using the new ironclad ships took place during the American Civil War in 1862. Hey, we like to play with our toys here in the States. Yeah. And then the second was the clash of the Italian and Austrian fleets in 1866. So all, all of these battles did have influence on the development of, you know, future ironclad designs. So when the Civil War breaks out, you know, the U.S. Navy doesn't have any. Their most powerful ships were six unarmored steam-powered frigates. And since the bulk of the Navy remained loyal to the Union, the Confederacy sought to try to gain an advantage in the conflict by acquiring modern armored ships. And in May of 1861, the Confederate Congress took $2 million and purchased ironclads from overseas. From the UK or? Yes. Okay. I'm sure that won't have any negative consequences for US-UK relations down the line. Well, I mean, the North was buying and selling stuff with the UK as well. Oh, oh, UK, you're you're double dealing. Don't double deal. Why not? That's how you piss off both customers. Well, that's why they couldn't be used as a uh, mediator <laughs> to end the conflict. So in, in July and August of 61, the Confederacy started work on constructing ironclads and converting wooden ships on their own. Good, you don't look confused this time. Okay, yeah, yes, now that I follow. <laughs> So, October 12th of 1861, the CSS Manassas became the first ironclad to enter combat. She fought Union warships on the Mississippi during the Battle of the Head of Passes. She had been converted from a commercial vessel in New Orleans for river and coastal fighting. So, she was a brown water boat. In February... The CSS Virginia, which was a larger ship, joined the Confederate Navy. They rebuilt her in Norfolk. They constructed her on the hull of the USS Merrimack. She was originally a conventional warship made out of, you know, wood. But she was converted into an ironclad gunship when she entered the Confederate Navy. And by this time, the Union had actually completed seven ironclad gunboats of the city class and was about to complete the USS Monitor. This, of course, was an innovative design from a Swedish inventor named John Ericsson. So the Union was also building large armored frigates. The USS New Ironsides and a slightly smaller USS Galena. So the first battle between ironclads happened March 9th, 1862, as the Monitor was deployed to protect the Union's wooden fleet from the ironclad ram, the Virginia, and, you know, other Confederate warships. Now, the 
two ironclads repeatedly try to ram into one another. <laughs> what? While shells bounced off of their armor. Well, what? I mean, if you could, if you start shooting at each other, and they keep bouncing off, what are you gonna do? Let's ram them. Okay. No. No. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. <laughs> so this battle attracted worldwide attention. It made it clear to everyone that wooden warships, no bueno. The ironclads destroy them quite easily. But then ironclads and ironclads are effectively just two kids fighting each other with pool noodles. But in this case, the pool noodle is exploding cannonballs. Well, until, you know, more development happens and you figure out how to penetrate the armor. You know, like with a ram. Yeah. <laughs> now, of course, the Civil War sees more ironclads built by both sides. And they played a more and more important role in the naval war alongside the other ships as commerce raiders and blockade runners. The Union, they build a fleet of 50 monitors. Holy crap. Yeah. And the Confederacy built a bunch of smaller versions of the Virginia. A lot of them that saw action. Now, the Confederacy's attempts to buy ironclads overseas started to get frustrating because European nations started confiscating ships that were being built for them, especially in Russia, which was the only country to openly support the Union throughout the war. So pretty much while the country would be declaring either neutrality or in favor of the Union, private businesses would be like, yes, but capitalism, my boy. Mm -hmm. And then the nation would be like, yes, but no. <laughs> Thanks for the new ship. We declared neutrality or in favor of the Union. We're not going to have you sell yep. the enemy. Yeah. Only one. The CSS Stonewall was completed. And she arrived in American waters just in time for the end of the war. I'm sure Stonewall Jackson would be very proud of that. <laughs> So, throughout the remainder of the war, Ironclad saw action in the Union attacks on the Confederate ports. Seven monitors, including the USS Montuck, as well as two other ones, the Ironclad Frigate, the new Ironsides, and a light draft USS Kyok, participated in an attack on Charleston, but it was a failure, and one was sunk. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, we'll be getting into these battles. I mean, we're right here at the... Yeah, yeah, we're, we're about to start getting into the fun Navy bits, but... Yeah. Now, two small ironclads, the CSS Palmetto State and the CSS Chira participated in the defense of the harbor and later attacked Mobile Bay. So on the Western Front, the Union built a formidable force of river ironclads, beginning with several converted riverboats. And then they contacted a guy named James Adds of St. Louis, Missouri, who was an engineer, 
to build the city class ironclads. Now these were actually pretty good boats, pretty, really good for brown water use. They had twin engines and a central paddle wheel. Uh, two engines to feed one prop? Yeah. Two, well, paddle wheel. Oh, oh. Still, and I mean, that'll all, give you a need for speed. Yeah. And all of this was protected by armored casement. They had a shallow draft, which is perfect for river and brown water operations. The same guy, Eads, also produced monitors for use on the rivers. The first two of which differed from the ocean-going ones because they contain a paddle wheel. So this engineer was playing both sides. <laughs> no, no, he wasn't. No, this is this is all union. Never mind. Okay. Scratch that crap. So paddle wheels, good for rivers, good for shallow ocean operations. Shore Screw. operations. Oh, oh. Not, so not even relatively shallow. Pretty much, if you can't see the shore, you're out too far. Oh, and wow. And even then, even if you can see the shore, you might be out too far. Okay, so pretty much like, how? Okay. <laughs> shallow draft, not good for ocean going. So no deeper than what, 30 feet? For I a... don't know. Okay. I, I, I don't know that, but, you know, the further Any... out you get, the rougher the seas, and if you have a shallow draft, the easier it is to capsize. Any uh, any old timer listeners who may have served on an ironclad, let us know. <laughs> wow, I don't know if any of those guys are left. They would be. Hey, we established talking... we established that the mighty Michigan was flying the Great Lakes until it sounds around World War One. It's possible possible that we have a navy man who was serving aboard as a wee little baby you have more luck with the ouija board <laughs> well unfortunately <laughs> that's confiscated captain well i mean you are trying to do bad things with it all i was trying to do was contact admiral Yi, and Yi had already said that he doesn't want to talk to you well he's just being stubborn but back to topic <laughs> so these ironclads played an important role on the Mississippi by providing a huge amount of bombardment on Confederate forts. And, you know, they pretty much didn't suffer anything with return fire. Right. It's like, oh, oh no, cannonballs, anything but that. If only these weren't purpose-built to take that. Well, I mean, they were not as heavily armored as the ocean-going ones, but, you know, they were more than adequate for what they were being used for. Right. More of these ironclads were actually sunk by torpedoes than by enemy fire. Oh, we had torpedoes back then. Torpedoes slash mines. Okay, see, mines I understand being around at this time period, but torpedoes, like, that's surprising. Torpedoes were the word for mines first, before they were rechristened mines. Oh, okay. So back in this era, torpedo does not mean effectively a prop-driven water missile, for lack of a better term. Okay. No. Okay. Oh, wow. We still have a lot to go. We'll be getting the torpedoes a little bit later, too. We still have a lot to go. I don't think we're getting through ironclads in this one episode. 
it's a huge technological advancement, not just for military, like, ships made of not wood weren't a thing until this, like, war sucks, but military innovation does have a tendency to drift over to the civilian sector as well, so this was a lot of the teething troubles of metal ships Yeah, over the course of a decade and change. So I think what we'll do is we'll hit the first fleet battle real quick, and then we will save the rest for part two. Good enough for me. Okay. This happened at Lisa. This is a island. It's in the Adriatic part of Austria. Oh, I'm not familiar enough with that part of the world to be able to tell you where that is. Uh, can, can we get it a little is... more zoomed out? <clears throat> the outermost island of the Dalmatian Archipelago. Does that help? Um, I'm going to Google Maps. <laughs> Maybe they had a car drive around and I can get a good look. Assuming my internet lets me view the map. Well, this is the first fleet battle, the first ocean-going battle involving ironclad warships. This was between the Austrian and Italian navies, and it pitted combined fleets of wooden frigates and corvettes and ironclad warships on both sides. And it was also the largest naval battle between the navies of Navarino and Tushuima. So the, the Italian fleet consisted of 12 ironclads, and about number their 12 wooden warships. They were escorting transports and troop carriers. They intended to land on Lisa. And among these ironclads were seven broadside ironclad frigates, four smaller ironclads, and the newly built Affendator, which was a double turreted ramp. The Austrian Navy had seven ironclad frigates. Now, the Austrians thought that their ships were going to have less effective guns than their enemies, so they decided they were going to engage them at close range and ram them. Guys, just because these are more durable does not mean you should just start playing bumper boats. <laughs> the Austrian fleet formed into a arrowhead formation with the ironclads right there in the beginning, or right there front and center, and started charging at the Italian ironclad squadron. So, as you can imagine, both sides were frustrated by the lack of damage inflicted by the guns, and the difficulty of ramming each other. But the Austrian flagship ended up making an effective ramming attack against the Italian ships and attracted a lot of attention after this. The Italian fleet lost two of its ironclads and the Austrian lost their unarmored screw-two-decker SMS Kaiser survived close action with four Italian armor-clads. Okay, well, I sincerely hope every crew member bought lottery tickets, because yes. that had no business still being floating, let alone in one piece. Yeah. So this battle 
when people looked back at it and said, wow, ramming is fun. We got to do more of this. <laughs> Guys. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> we have a new meme on this show. <laughs> Arson's out, folks. Ramming's in. <laughs> and uh, and Austria, they win this fight. This made them the predominant naval power in the Adriatic. So the battles of the Civil War in America and here in Lisa were very informative and used to great effect on the designs and tactics of ironclad fleets that followed these guys. You know, it taught a generation of naval officers the lesson that ramming was the best way to sink enemy ironclads. Yeah, I mean, if you have a reinforced bow and you know where the enemy's armor isn't quite as thick, I suppose that you uh, have more power moving that much mass mm. at, you know, 13, 14 knots. I mean, that's the lesson they gained from it, but guess what? It didn't really work out that well. I mean, I, I heard several ships were sank. Well, I mean, you smash into something long enough, something's going to sink. I have ideas for how you can sink an ironclad, and I'm guessing that the engineers back then did as well, but I'm guessing we're going to get there sooner. But not today. Well, next time we're going to get into the armament and tactics. You know, like the ram craze. <laughs> the development of naval guns. Oh my. The positioning of armaments. I just, you know, I just had a thought. At this yeah. point, naval combat had come full circle. Yeah. It started with trying to ram your trireme into the other guy's trireme. Yep. In such a way that your ship didn't get damaged. Yep. And we're back here again. <laughs> it took a little over 2,000 years, but here we are, folks. So this, I think, is where we're going to leave it. So, Stephen, are you happy? Yes, and I can't wait for the next episode to see what happens next. <laughs> All right. So, anything you'd like to say before we sh pull back into port? Well, folks, uh, as the captain keeps reminding me, the swag shop is back online. So, if you're enjoying the show and want to show us some support, feel free to buy a redacted Navy podcast shirt or a mug or buy a shirt or a mug or a poster of some of the captain's fine artwork. We also have a Discord server now if you would like to engage with us in real time. You can email us, as always, at the USN History Podcast. Why am I saying at? <laughs> <laughs> Our email is usnhistorypodcast at gmail. I was doing so good on this, okay? I was doing good on this. For a month or so, I was doing good on this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, folks. I sincerely hope he cleans this up. And if he doesn't, oh, well. Yeah, you know, he's shaking his head no. He's shaking his head no, but at least I can provide amusement. You can tweet at us at USN History Pod. The email is the USN History Podcast at gmail.com. No, okay, you know, you, you just say it. You just say it. Apparently, I can't remember anything right now. 
US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Go ahead, say it. Oh, no, you, you did such a great job. Uh, all of this but, can be found in the show notes. Don't rely on me. I'm an unreliable, uh, you know, social media plugger, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but with that, I wish you all fair winds following seas. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 